Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore topics that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider how a forensic and psychiatric nurse transformed the way that the FBI studies, profiles, and catches serial killers. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I know. All right, but I think we need to explain. So like everyone else during the pandemic, I kept searching for shows that would distract me. I needed something gripping, but not too upsetting. And I ended up finding a Netflix show called Mindhunter, which involves serial killers, which, you know, that's disturbing. But its real focus is telling the story of how the FBI developed their system of profiling serial killers, which helps to catch them more quickly. A very small team at the FBI developed this profiling method, and it included one woman, an expert in psychology. She's named Wendy Carr on the show, and she's based on the real life Anne Burgess. I love the Wendy Carr character on Mindhunter. And when I learned that Anne Burgess herself had a memoir that recently came out, I was beyond excited. I knew I wanted to read it, and I really hoped that we would get to talk to Anne about her story. I feel the same way. I learned about the show through you and basically binged the entire first season, I don't know, in a day or something like something embarrassing that I shouldn't admit publicly. <laughs> right. um, so it was thrilling when Anne agreed to come on the show. She worked on the book with her colleague, Stephen Constantine, and we got to speak with both of them together. The memoir is called A Killer by Design, Murderers, Mind Hunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind. It's one of Amazon's best true crime books, and it was an Amazon Best Book of the Month pick and an Apple Audio Must Listen. It gives a great behind-the-scenes look at the creation and evolution of criminal profiling and the role that Anne played in particular. So we'll discuss that in detail with Anne and Stephen, but first a little more detail about them. Dr. Anne Wolbert Burgess is a leading forensic and psychiatric nurse who worked with the FBI for over two decades. She's received numerous awards, nationally and internationally, for her professional work. She's currently a professor at the Boston College Connell School of Nursing, and she lives in Boston, Massachusetts. Stephen Constantine is the assistant director of marketing and communications at the Boston College Connell School of Nursing. He holds an MFA from the Bennington Writing Seminars and lives in Boston, Massachusetts. We started by asking Anne about her early research into sexual violence, which eventually drew the attention of the FBI. As a doctoral student studying psychiatric nursing, she was drawn to the female patients at her facility who were suffering from mental illness. In her book, she says, I realized almost immediately that the vast majority of these women hadn't been born with mental illness, nor had they developed it at a young age. The common thread tying most of these women together was that they were victims of sexual assault. These women had been attacked, stigmatized, and then forced to manage the trauma of their experiences on their own silently or face the likely consequence of being blamed for instigating their own vicious assault. Anne realized that she should interview offenders to better understand their lasting effect on the victims 
If she understood more fully what they had done, meaning the offenders, she could understand better how to help. And because the victims had such difficulty talking about what had happened, she figured she might learn more from offenders about why the victims had the responses they were having. Here she is explaining the moment when she came to that realization, a moment involving a patient named Maria. My experience with Maria was a result of what I was learning in the classroom. And one of the things they were saying is you stay with the patient until they can start talking to you that maybe many times they will be very silent. So I was staying with the patient and she was pacing and she would go up and down and around the whole the big room in the uh, unit. And she kept mumbling to herself. And finally, I was able to catch up with her enough to hear what she was saying. And she said to me, why are you following me, you goddamn redheaded bitch? And that <laughs> made me really start. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, gee, why am I? <laughs> and uh, she was right. So I stopped. I told her I had enjoyed walking with her. And I stopped. And that's when I began to think that just being with the victim wasn't going to be enough, that maybe I need to understand the offender. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you turned your attention to the male patients in the psychiatric unit, in that forensic ward? Many of these patients had committed serious offenses, such as sexual assault or rape, and they were waiting for their court cases to be heard. Can you tell us a little bit more about the insights that you gleaned from them? Meeting with the males it was more intimidating. I certainly admit that because I we didn't know a lot about what had happened. We knew that they had done something to merit their being on the ward. So what I decided to do is um, talk with them in groups and see if I could better understand them about why they were there. And they actually responded well because not a lot of people would talk to them. Mm -hmm. People were frightened of them and they were just really waiting to, before they were going to be going to court. So I would say it was intimidating, but I needed to learn and to hear from them how they perceived what they had done and what brought them to that particular unit. Mm -hmm. And what kinds of things did you learn? It depended, of course, on what they were there for. So if they said they had done a robbery or what we call probably were going to be misdemeanors, they would have a reason for why they had been in the store and had robbed the uh, store clerk or something like that. But mm -hmm. uh, I was struck in talking to some that were there for rape about how they would blame the victim. You know, she shouldn't have been out at that time. Why did she talk to me? Was there something special? And all of those rape myths just came tumbling out, if you will, when I would talk with them. The assaults, of course, tended to be more domestic. And so there was a relationship. And those men would blame a lot on the partner. And what was the response of your colleagues when you told them about the work you were doing? Oh, they didn't think that this was nursing. Uh, that was mm -hmm. the problem. That how, how can you be seeing these people? They're not. It's not nursing. You're not in the hospital. You know, taking care of people that have a, an illness or some kind of problem. So there was not much support at that particular time. They didn't mind the psychiatric part, but it was the forensic piece that really. Uh, they steered me away. They said, "Your career's not going anywhere if you stay in this area." So this work with sexual violence, your 
researching the victims and the offenders, that led you to work with the FBI. They sought you out because they were seeing an increase in crimes of that nature and they needed an expert to help agents understand what was going on. And early in your time at the FBI, you met two agents in the behavioral science unit, Robert Ressler and John Douglas. They weren't trained in research techniques or analysis, but they had begun interviewing convicted serial killers. The FBI had been seeing many examples of crimes with no apparent motive, and talking to these convicted killers seemed like the best way to get answers, but they didn't know what they were doing. And Ressler told you that he was afraid that all they had were recordings of I'm quoting him here, a bunch of sickos fantasizing about their crimes and not offering much else. You say in the book that those initial interviews were poorly structured and had zero footing in any conventional school of research. The only goal seemed to be keeping the killers talking. But you say you were impressed. And I'm wondering what impressed you and how did you work with Ressler and Douglas and others later to change their approach. What impressed me about the interviews as I listened to them was what the criminal was saying. I mean, that was really quite impressive. I never had heard the detail, if you will, in their crimes. Mm. And what these agents were able to do was to get them to talk. And that was their goal because they didn't know as you already said, the structure, if you will, of research. Now, at that time is when William Webster, who was now the new director of the FBI, had said that the training division, the FBI Academy, was to do their own research and to get it out to law enforcement. And so that's what Bob and John Douglas were doing. So I was really brought in to structure the research to get it into respectable research terms, if you will. And that's exactly what we did. We worked together. We got a 57-page <laughs> survey tool so that we were asking the same questions to all of the persons that they were interviewing. Then we had the data that we can then crunch down and come up with some findings. So you and your colleagues at the Behavioral Science Unit, you took this tool that you had developed after you came on the scene, this profiling tool. And I think in Douglas's words, the point was to help law enforcement, quote, focus on the most likely suspects and offer proactive techniques to draw the real criminals out. So it would be great if, as one example, you could take us through one of the earliest cases that the team profiled of a serial killer in Omaha, Nebraska, who had killed two children in 1983 when your unit became involved. How did you come up with a profile of the unidentified perpetrator? And I think the term you use for that is unsub. Yes, I call it an unsub. The um, case came into the behavioral science unit and it was assigned to Bob Ressler. And Bob went right out to the site. It was one thing that they always did that they went to meet with the investigators and to talk and to see where the body was and all kinds of things that they would normally look at in a crime scene. So Bob was the one that came up with the profile. And the profile is always done in behavioral terms. They would want to know what the gender was, what he was uh, doing for work, where he lived. 
anything in terms of background that they could give the local law enforcement that they could come up with. And that's what he did. Bob came up with the age, where he thought he lived, where he worked. Did he work? Yes, he worked. So all of those questions. And that's what was then sent out to all of the persons working on it. They had a whole team working on it. And then, of course, Bob was concerned, as well as all of the others, that there might be a second victim. Mm-hmm. And indeed, there was. And that victim, it was just fortuitous that two hunters were out, had just begun to snow, and they came across the body. It was really almost covered in snow. And it was very different. It was in the woods. So already the method had changed. There was no question in wrestler's mind that this was the same killer. And so he changed a little bit of his profile. And then that got out to the community And they decided to really do a media blitz on it because they were concerned that there was going to be another victim. And because they had had told everybody in the community to watch for this, there was a very observant teacher. She noticed this car that was driving very suspiciously. She went out to inquire and the driver made some pretty negative verbal remarks to her. She was able to get the license plate number all except the very last digit. She called it in to the local police and they very quickly were able to get the uh, full license plate number and they were able to track it to a person. And the person and the behavioral characteristics were so on target, if you will. The only thing that Bob had missed was that he said it would be an Ensign uh, 4 at the Offutt Air Force Base because Offutt Air Force Base was so close. Mm -hmm. And he was only off by one degree. I think it was an Ensign 3 rather than a 4. I wonder if you can maybe get in the weeds a little bit and tell us how Bob was able to make the inferences. How did he actually figure out that this person was likely to have such and such a job and be such and such an age and all of the information that he came up with? So one of the things that was important about that case, too, was that Bob did the original profile for the case. And then once more information came in, he brought it back to the team at the BSU, including Dr. Burgess, to refine it off of additional information. So I'll let her speak about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it had to do with the victimology. And that was, again, that was the content area, if you will, that I brought to the agents because they didn't have a lot of background in the victimology because their whole work was really on investigating and getting a suspect. So the victimology was the size of the victim was very important. They were pretty close in size. Uh, weight and so forth. And because the first victim was just left by the side of the road, and the second victim was in the woods with two pairs of footprints going in and obviously only one coming back out. Now, a really big uh, man would have been able to probably carry them. These were two boys that were 12 years old, but he couldn't pick them up. So they decided that it was a smaller person, Mm -hmm. the suspect smaller, because he left the one by the side of the road. But what he did with the second one was to march him in. One detail I found fascinating about that case was that among many other similarities between the profile and the killer who was eventually caught, the profile predicted that the unsub read police and detective magazines. And then the actual killer confessed that he got off on reading detective magazines about dominance. 
how do you explain that the profilers guessed that? That's such a specific detail. Yeah, that would be one of the profile characteristics of what kinds of media does the person engage in. Nowadays, of course, it's going to be more video and internet and so forth. But back in those days, it was what kind of magazines that they get into. And we had already noticed that that was common for some of the killers that we had studied for them to use that as their reading material. And it makes sense because it really feeds their fantasy and gives them ideas, if you will, when they read about other crimes that have been committed. And they did feel he was intelligent, so IQ was going to be a factor. It's one of the behavioral indicators. Whether they had completed any education, that would be another factor. And they had the right age. The younger they are, the more likely you're going to see a confession, and he did. I think it's important to remember, too, that even in the early days of profiling, it wasn't just educated guesswork. Dr. Burgess and the team at the BSU had done a study on 36 serial killers. And so they were able to draw from what they learned from those killers and interviewing them and apply those lessons to the early stages of profiling. And then as they did more and more profiling, it became a more and more sophisticated tool that they were able to use and refine further. I think of the Omaha case as an example of how profiling helped law enforcement focus on the most likely suspect. Stephen, could you tell us about the case of BTK as an example of a time when proactive profiling techniques have been used to draw criminals out? Sure. Yeah. I think one of the lessons learned by the agents at the BSU was that a lot of these serial killers took a lot of sort of perverse pride in their work. They wanted to be recognized for their actions. They looked at the actions of other serial killers and they compared themselves to how successful they were in terms of being elusive or the amount of victims killed or sort of the shock value. And so a lot of them had this habit of inserting themselves into the investigation process And sometimes that was uh, by offering to help investigators by just walking up to a crime scene and saying, hey, is there anything I can do to help here? Or I saw this guy and maybe that'll help narrow it down. But there was a lot of hubris involved. And so one of the things that the agents and Dr. Burgess learned was that if you can play to that hubris, you can draw out the ego and you can get these killers to slip up a little bit. So one of the goals with BTK was not to get them to commit more crimes, because certainly the, the loss of life would not have been appropriate there. But the goal was to get BTK to continue his earlier behavior of engaging with the media. Um, BTK liked to send in letters to local news and the local police in Wichita. Sometimes he would send in packages with sort of collages that he did showing how he displayed or photographed his victims after he would kill them. And so the team came up with this strategy to create this super cop, this type of person that kind of embodied all of the elements that a serial killer like BTK would want in himself, uh, which were to be a figure of authority, to be in law enforcement, to be respected. And they had this super cop go on press conferences and speak to directly to BTK and about his crimes to create this sense of familiarity there. And BTK would then respond by writing in letters and develop this sort of sense of of comfort. And in BTK's mind, this level of friendship. 
And in the end, BTK asked, you know, if I send in this floppy disk with some additional items on it, will you be able to track me? And the super cop said, no, of course not. And of course, they were able to track BTK through that floppy disk. And it was really interesting because once uh, BTK was arrested, you know, he turned to the super cop and said, you know, I thought you you told me you, you can track me from this. I thought we were friends. Why would you do this? That's my job. I was trying to catch you this whole time. And it just came as a complete shock to BTK because, you know, he was in his own world and he thought that his ego was the most important thing and was just really divorced from reality at that point. I want to go back to the Omaha killings for a second because that profiling success first brought national attention to the team and propelled their work forward. Anne mentioned that her colleague, Bob Ressler, was convinced that the second murder in that case was committed by the same killer. That's because, as she notes in the book, the victims looked very similar, as did their wounds and the sites where the bodies were dumped. The book includes the profile that they created for the case, and it gives a really helpful sense of their process. The team added to the evidence of the particular case, and, and I'm quoting here, Basic demographics that our ongoing research on serial killers had made fairly obvious. He was white, given that serial killers tended to kill within their race. He was young, since younger victims were a sign of sexual immaturity. He owns a well-maintained car, something presentable enough that his victims feel comfortable getting inside. He's able to project confidence and an ease of conversation with his preferred victims because of his similarity in age. His habit of mourning abductions points to a blue-collar shift worker. This, again, points to average intelligence with likely some high school education, but nothing more. He's not married, not comfortable around women. He has a fixation on young boys and is likely involved in an activity that allows him to associate with these kids, such as a Little League team. The full profile in the book is much longer, but you can see how the many interviews that the team had conducted with serial killers helped them reach predictive conclusions. And it's uncanny how much they got right. The killer confessed and his circumstances and rationales all aligned with the profile. You know, it's interesting, too, that he's of average intelligence and that BTK was relatively easily played by the police. I feel like there's a bit of a myth that serial killers as a class are, you know, kind of out there masterminding with well above average intelligence, kind of the evil genius. And maybe some of them fit that description. But Anne's work makes clear that this isn't necessarily the case. There are a lot of patterns and commonalities that, once recognized, can help show the criminals for who and what they really are and help bring them to justice. I am so interested, too, in the psychological insights that Anne was able to contribute to the FBI. Her research into sexual violence and the motivations of offenders played a critical role in developing profiling, as did her focus on and insights into victimology. In other words, what does the serial killer's choice of victim tell us about the killer? She was so on the forefront of this kind of thinking, and she was the only woman in her unit at the FBI when she started in the 1970s. We asked her next what that was like. Here's what she said. I, I think what made a difference is I had information that they needed, and they were very good at 
seeking out new information, not only me, but they would have on occasion other lecturers come in. Because I worked with them on the victimology and and getting the uh, research strategy set up, it didn't seem to be a problem. I will say they were very protective, but I think they're protective of females in general. You know, I always felt that uh, they had my back, so to speak, that uh, they weren't going to put me in any uh, unusual situation. Yeah. And your work involves investigating really gruesome crimes with deeply upsetting facts that you see in graphic photographs and devastating victim testimony. How did that affect you emotionally? You must have had visceral reactions when you saw that. And so how, how were you able to overcome that and think clearly and remain focused on the work? Yeah, well, in uh, nursing education and training, you have to compartmentalize because as a nurse, I saw some awful upsetting situations, certainly coming into the emergency room or illnesses or after surgery or whatever. So that didn't really bother me because I was used to it and I was able to, as I already said, compartmentalize. But the stories were what so were so tragic. And um, did I think about them on occasion? Sure. I mm-hmm. uh, can't say that I didn't, but the goal was to find who did this. And so that's what we all were so focused on. We just wanted to get things solved. Now, you worked for years with people who interviewed some of the most notorious serial killers in history, and you read all the transcripts and listened to all the tapes. And so I'm wondering, what are serial killers like in person? Do they seem like regular people, or is there something off about them, or is the answer, it depends on the person? Well, certainly the latter is going to, that's going to affect it, but they really are split. So many of them split so that they can put a persona on to the world, so to speak, or to you, you know, whoever is talking to them. And that's a very different persona that they put on to their victim. They say the monster will come out. And it is a monster in a way that comes out and does such horrendous things. But as far as reacting to them, those that were more, if you will, psychopathic were very engaging. Mm -hmm. That's the way they had worked the world, so to speak. That's the way they had obtain their victims. Look at Ted Bundy, handsome guy, would you know, pretend he had a broken arm or something like that to uh, get access to a young female. And some of them I, I really liked mm-hmm. in a way in terms of what my job was, was to interview or whatever. That's why when people say, I never thought he was the one, you know, when they interview a neighbor or something, you can understand it. Yeah. In looking at some of the videos, we try to do that with students is to give them an idea of how, quote, normal they seem when they're talking to you. Of course, they're trying to to manipulate you. And I I remind them of that, that their world is to manipulate people that feeds their ego. It's important to realize that a lot of these killers, they killed the victim, but they were putting it over in their eyes on the police. So they were getting as much of a high out of that as the killing. In the book, you note that profiling developed in the 70s, in part because investigators around the country had noticed a rise in violence and were trying to get new techniques to help them understand what was going on. And these reports described cases as more bizarre, more unpredictable, and much more complex. You write, this was especially true for violent crimes against strangers, extremely difficult cases to solve, which were occurring more frequently than ever before. It was clear that criminals were changing their approaches. 
Do we have any idea why these cases were becoming more bizarre and complex at that time? There is a book that came out a couple of years ago that actually tries to answer that question. It's called The New Evil by uh, Michael Stone and Gary Brucato. And they look at the culture since the 60s and try to look at how it has evolved and think that that has something to do with the loosening of um, social controls, if you will, or individual controls. And that that is one thing that they believe is causing some of the extreme behaviors. Mm -hmm. I think that was also a bit of a cultural shift or a perception shift. You know, there's a long history of different serial killers and people committing really bizarre and violent crimes. You know, you look at Jack the Ripper, you look at someone like Ed Gein, and they were out there. I think it was just dismissed as crazy for a long time. Mm -hmm. It really took until the 70s for people to say, well, maybe it's not just blanket crazy. Maybe there is something here. We just need to give it some deeper consideration. Yeah. I personally think Mindhunter, the Netflix drama that's inspired by your work, Anne, and the profiling team at the FBI, I personally think the show is terrific. I'm a fan. So I'd love to ask you a little bit about it, starting with what does the show get right and what does it get wrong? Oh, well, the show gets the cases right, and they should have because the agents had described those in their own books. What they didn't get right were the backgrounds of the three of us were almost 180s. I guess you'd have to chalk it up to they were just trying to be Hollywood there and, and making up all this background. It was really rather strange, the kinds of things they said about the three of us, I thought. So that's what I would say they didn't get right. And I think John was, you'd have to ask him, but if I remember correctly, he wasn't very happy with the way they profiled him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about some of the plot lines and I understand why yeah. that, his wife might not be so happy either. No, right. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I was going to ask you what it's like to watch yourself being played by actors on the screen, but I'm getting the sense that, you know, maybe not so fun because it's not really you. Yeah. Well, I did like the way Anna Tobe, or Dr. Wendy Carr, I guess we should call her. And sometimes I do call myself Wendy. But <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't want to I be answer, her? Yeah, I answer to Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty accurate. And I thought she did a great job on how she portrayed the unit and her work and so forth. I thought that was pretty good. I love that Anne calls herself Wendy. I still can't believe that we got to talk to the real life Wendy Carr. I know. I know. I feel a little bit fanish, you know. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Fan swoon. Right. And I really encourage our listeners to go watch Mind Hunters if you haven't already and to read Anne's book. Her life on the screen and on the page is fascinating, even if the personal details on the screen are, you know, basically made up. <laughs> I wholeheartedly endorse that recommendation. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Anne and Stephen on bc.edu. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. 
and check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.